Israel News Talk Radio, straight talk from Israel. You're listening to The Jay Shapiro Show. Hello again, you're back with Jay Shapiro. When the state of Israel came into being in 1948, it only had one product for export, and that was oranges. Israel's only export product was oranges. Now, this year, Israel has achieved an unbelievable feat in exports, particularly defense exports. In 2022, the defense ministry said that it is selling $12.5 billion dollars worth of diverse systems and products, including air defense and drones. Intel Electric also reported a record-breaking $8.7 billion in exports. So it's close to $20 billion in exports, meaning we've got hard cash in, from exports. So these reports not only underscore Israel's robust economy, they highlight something else, and it's really important. Israel now has global influence, and Israel now plays a role in assisting other countries all around the world in defending themselves against threats that each of them has. For example, now there are countries that are very concerned about Russia. Since the Russian war in Ukraine has gone on for over a year, there are other countries in the area are worrying about Russia's aggressiveness. Now, Israel has a profound understanding of the significance of defense because we learned it from the time the country came into being. For example, to counter the missile threats that come from Gaza, Israel has developed an advanced system, a number of them. The most prominent, the one that's known mostly, is the one called Iron Dome. Israel has to safeguard its tanks, And Israel has developed something called the Trophy, which is an active protection system for for, uh, tanks. Now, the countries that have been involved are Rafael Advanced Defense Systems, Israel Aerospace Industries, where I myself worked until my retirement, and Elbit Systems. Elbit was originally part of... uh, Israel Aircraft, and uh, when I came on Aliyah, Israel Aircraft was called Israel Aircraft, then it changed its name to Israel Aerospace, because the the products that it produces are much broader, it's not just aircraft. So they, these, these companies ensured our prosperity and we're investing in the next generation of technological experts who push the boundaries of innovation. It's interesting, by the way, on a personal note, I work for Israel Aircraft, 
my son-in-law works for Israel and for Elbit, and my his daughter, my uh, my granddaughter, works for um, Israel Air, uh, Aerospace. So we're three generations, pretty much in the same company. I always get around with my son-in-law. I say it's time for them to give us a dinner. Three generations working for the same company. So uh, now Israel has these defense technologies, but they can also be used to assist civilians in many ways. For example, small Israeli defense tech firms provided aid in the aftermath of an earthquake in Turkey last year. For example, what they can do is that the radar systems can scan a building for defense purposes, but also be used to locate people trapped under rubble. The same thing is true of drones. We've developed drones. Drones can be used in war. They can also be used in rescue operations. So this combination of investments in defense industries and the high-tech sector drives modern society. It fuels Israel's current global standing. And it's interesting, by the way, Israel is a country that has no natural resources. The only natural resources we have is our people. And therefore, use of our people properly is a use of a natural resource that can be used on a global uh, orientation so that we can use our ability to earn income from other countries. Intel Israel, for example, places a great emphasis on inclusivity and diversity in Israel's current global standing. And uh, they recently came out with a uh, corporate responsibility report. So what happens is Intel Israel has made a real significant strides in supporting businesses owned by women or businesses owned by minorities. So what it really does also, besides bringing income into the country, it serves underrepresented communities, women and minorities. And Israel is actively seeking to invest more in poor communities in the periphery. In the Negev, for example, we're trying to invest companies. They should move to the Negev and hire people and train people there. So the, the Israeli defense establishment has reached really new heights in exports. So the, uh, it shows our technological capabilities through the creativity and innovation of of the Israel Defense Establishment and the Defense Ministry, Israel can outpace our enemies, but also sustain our qualitative edge. Now, for example, Israel now plays a very pivotal role in any defense of a number of countries in Europe. Now, after the Russian invasion of Ukraine, Many nations have become acutely aware of their own vulnerability in the face of Russia. 
to what has happened is, for example, Finland, which is right on Russia's border, has already procured Israel's system called the David Sling, and Germany, of all places, is moving toward uh, uh, to acquire the Arrow 3 system, which is a system that originally came to Israel from the United States, but together with Israel, working together with the United States, they developed and improved the Arrow 3 system. So it's really, although it started in the United States, it's now a, now a basically a daughter of both, of both Israel and the United States. And now they're going to sell it to uh, Germany. So, so what this demonstrates, beside the fact that Israel is a, really a high-tech country, it demonstrates that the returns on investment gained from partnership with Washington. Although we, we got aid from Washington, we took those things that were, that were part of the aid, developed them better, even and returned these new developments to the United States. So both Israel and the United States benefit immensely from foreign aid provided by America to Israel. Israeli companies actively collaborate, collaborate with the US, U.S. They work together on research and development, and they expedite the procurement of key systems that save lives in both nations and uh, produce products that can be sold to other nations. Interestingly enough, at the same time, uh, we have something now called the Abraham Accords. So Israel's making significant progress in these accords. The United Arab Emirates, Bahrain, and Morocco have emerged as vital partners to Israel, and as a matter of fact, these three countries, the United Arab Emirates, Bahrain, and Morocco, uh, account for a quarter of Israel's defense exports. These countries do not have industries of their own to provide for their defense. They buy this from Israel. And furthermore, there's a growing recognition in Washington regarding the importance of the Accords. So there, there is now legislation in the American Congress to establish a special envoy in the State Department whose job is to strengthen and expand the Abraham Accords. The Abraham Accords are with between Israel and these Arab countries I'm sorry, with these Muslim countries, and now the Americans are establishing uh, have special legislation to strengthen these accords. So Israel's defense ties and Israel's exports serve as a critical component of its strategic relationships, not only with Gulf states, but also with countries like India and Azerbaijan. Our growing relationship with Germany is also bolstered by unique, unique trade opportunities. We're selling things to Germany, and Germany is afraid of Russia. By the way, at the same time, Germany is uh, building submarines for Israel.
So Israel has recently acquired a six-class Corvette warship from Germany, and uh, that is a uh, essential the uh, for Israel protecting our coast and for protecting what's called the exclusive economic zone. And the German Air Force purchased electronic warfare systems from Elbit two weeks ago, enhancing the partnership. So there are geopolitical changes occurring in Europe and in Asia, uh, of course, uh, including the Abraham Accords. So what what has happened now, there is a demand, a significant demand, for cutting-edge cutting systems produced by Israel. Now, we understand that the years Israel endured an acute necessity for the systems it developed will now benefit the world. Israel developed a lot of things by itself. It got a lot of weapon systems from the United States and developed them more than, than they were originally were when Israel received them. And, and it really will now benefit the free world because we are now marked by an, a time of instability and global transformation. The war that started uh, more than a year ago in the Ukraine is now affecting, in particular, the countries of Europe who uh, now look at Russia for years. First, there was the Iron Curtain. Everything became sort of quiet, and it's no longer quiet. And so countries like Finland, which are right on the border of the Soviet Union, are now starting uh, to worry about their own defense and they don't have the industrial capability to develop what they really need, and now they're turning to Israel. So we live in a very strange world. Things keep changing. What was true ten, no, just five years ago is no longer true today, and Israel has been able to take advantage of the manpower it has and the intellectual power, the brain power it has, Israel's a country with no raw materials. The only thing we have is the people. And Israel has been able to develop the people to the point that the people themselves have produced products and ideas that are exportable and bring in hard cash. So in a wonderful situation, you look, you look back at when Israel came into being in 1948, as I said at the beginning, the only export it had was oranges. Oranges grew here. Now, we, now we're exporting the brain power of our people. We're getting things from other countries like the United States, improving them to the benefit not only of the United States, but of other countries. So it's a really different world today than it was 70-some years ago. And it's a different world today than it was even five years ago. So there's never a dull moment. And just finish this segment with a rather interesting uh, 
article that appeared way on the back pages of the papers, if it appeared at all, there, there is a, a company called Ryan Air, R-Y-A-N-A-I-R. I think it's based in Ireland. And what happened was um, a, a plane flew, a Ryan Air plane flew into Tel Aviv and the uh, stewardess announced that they're about to land in Palestine. And that set up a tremendous uproar. So the CEO of Ryanair apologized for an incident. And as I said, on June 10th, a flight from Bologna in Italy to Tel Aviv referred to the Jewish state as Palestine. So the CEO of Ryanair made the apology in a letter he sent to the Simon Wiesenthal Center shortly after the Jewish Human Rights Organization urged the CEO to investigate the incident. The flight, what happened was that the flight attendant announced in Italian and in English that the plane would be landing in Palestine. No, so he wrote, the, the head of the company wrote, it's not Ryanair policy for our or uh, our crew practice to refer to Tel Aviv as being in any country other than Israel. According to the letter, the crew members received a warning to ensure the incident does not happen again. He also said that Ryanair is 100% satisfied that, the, that this was an innocent mistake with no political overtones or intent. Uh, I'll tell you, anybody who refers to Tel Aviv as Palestine, I find it very hard to believe that it's an innocent mistake. Tel Aviv has been a city in Israel since 1948, and it's always a Jewish city. So uh, several passengers did complain on board. When the crew, crew realized what had been announced, the crew member made a second announcement apologizing, correcting this error. And uh, the letter, this apology letter came from the CEO, went on to say that uh, police were called to meet the aircraft landing in Tel Aviv after a small number of passengers continued to be abusive toward the aircraft crew despite the apology. That's interesting because that wasn't in the news the other day. It didn't say anything in the news about the uh, passengers continuing to be abusive. So the the CEO of Ryanair, which I must tell you the truth, I never heard of before, but that's my problem. He said, we are Israel's second largest airline. We plan to continue to invest in Israel to grow traffic and connectivity connectivity, both for Israelis traveling to Europe and bring much-needed inbound tourism to Israel. The, uh, the, uh, the, the person here, the, uh, the Simon Wiesenthal Center, Center got this letter from Ryan Ayer, and the, uh, the social action director of the Simon Wiesel Center's Center, somebody named Rabbi Abraham Cooper, who said he accepted the apology and everyone is entitled to their opinion, 
but not to alternative facts. Israel is the capital, Israel's capital is Jerusalem. Tel Aviv is a city in Israel. Neither of them is any place called Palestine. As a matter of fact, at the very moment, there is no country called Palestine. Palestine is what the Romans named this place after they destroyed the temple, but that just ain't true no more. Having said that, take a break. Thanks for listening so far. I'll be back after the break. Israel News Talk Radio, straight talk from Israel. Want real answers to the big questions of life? Who am I? Why am I here? How can I find lasting happiness? If God is good, why is the world so bad? Don't miss Soul Talk with Rabbi David Aaron. Revealing, inspiring, empowering. Thursdays on Israel News Talk Radio. You're back again uh, with Jay Shapiro. And uh, I want to say a few more words about the subject that doesn't seem to want to go away. There, there is now a uh, a new definition of uh, anti-Semitism. It's based on the International Holocaust Remembrance Alliance, which is called the IHRA, and it has now defined anti-Semitism. And so far, this definition was adopted by a lot of countries around the world, as well as hundreds of organizations and all kinds of official bodies. And it includes many examples of what's considered to be anti-Semitism, some of which are ones that see anti-Zionism as anti-Semitism. Another is that says drawing comparisons of contemporary Israeli policy to the that of the Nazis is considered anti-Semitism, as well as targeting the state of Israel conceived of as a Jewish collectivity. So there's a number of Jewish leaders, uh, according to which the fact that these de- these uh, definitions haven't been considered is a have been considered at all is a, is a positive thing. The, the, the definition was created to confront anti-Semitism and address the uh, objections to with this definition. There have others have come up with other definitions, all kind of definitions, two major definitions. And I looked at both definitions, and uh, I simply don't see much difference between them, but uh, I'm not an expert uh, in these things. But take a, look at, take a look at Israel itself. The new anti-Semitism uh, is, is, is reinvented itself from the classical hatred of Jews, which of course is no longer acceptable. Now there is a new tolerable form of anti-Semitism, which is hatred of Israel, the state. So... Uh, once seen as the darling of the world, Israel was once seen as an underdog, a weak nation in need of help, a sanctuary for Jews after the Holocaust. Israel has become a victim of its own success. As I said in the previous portion of this program, 
Israel has become a major exporter of goods, particularly defense goods, to a lot of countries, including Germany. So Israel is no longer seen as the underdog. So outside political forces are committed to paint Israel as just another target in their erratic, racialized worldview. Zionism, which is the movement for the self-determination for the Jewish people, uh, has become a sort of a, a, a vile concept to be attacked. For example, younger generations, especially Americans, see only one state of Israel, which is a strong Israel, which they also consider an oppressive Israel. They're oppressing the Palestinians. They look upon Israel as a colonizing Israel because that we really shouldn't be here. We put all people from all around the world as colonists here. That uh, So all these, this, this, these new uh, ways of looking at Israel are, uh, fits into pre-existing and yet unrelated social and political constructs about race and about power. So we have to wake up to what's happening. So the, the battle for the future of Israel is playing out not only here in Israel, but it's playing out even among countries that our, are our friends. In the United States, in high schools, and particularly on college campuses, uh, in mainstream media, social media, and some members of Congress, and the European Union, uh, the uh, the we have to fight back against this tide because particularly as I see it one of the big problems we have is this is a small but noisy group in the American Congress which is very anti-Israel and you don't hear many voices against them so we have to really we have to help our own young people. People today are, uh, there are Jewish students who are afraid, for example, to wear uh, skull caps on the campus. They'll be associated not simply as Jews, but be associated with Israel. And Israel has become a more and more a dirty word on campuses in the United States, as I understand what's happening. So we must explore and highlight why Israel's founding, Israel's existence, and Israel's endurance is important today, not only for the Jewish community, particularly in the United States, but also for America and for the world. The fact, as we mentioned, as I mentioned in the previous segment of the program, there are other countries coming to Israel to buy uh, armaments that they need for their own defense. That's a good thing. But in a sense, that's only on the government-to-government level. The problem is that uh, the younger generation in many countries, particularly the United States, has a little notion of close Israel came to not to exist at all. And the, the, uh, today they see Israel as a powerful country. And when you're a powerful country, you are the target 
of all kind of propaganda. So David Ben-Gurion, Israel's first prime minister, used to say, in Israel, in order to be a realist, you have to believe in miracles. And that is really true. We who support Israel, and those in our community in the United States, the Jewish community, and in Congress, whose support of Israel have to declare what is certifiably true. Israel's existence, its persistence, its unparalleled resilience are really miraculous. And we must also continuously showcase and communicate the wonderful humanity and diversity that Israel represents. Israel has been called a land lacking in natural resources, but we have discovered the greatest resource of all, human capital, which is richer than any of the resources in the earth. <coughs> and, that, and that's what we take advantage of now. That's why we have a booming export market. Israel is a small country. I often ask visitors who come to us, particularly non-Jews, they ask them, how big is Israel? They really have no idea. Uh, Israel is roughly, uh, physically, uh, the size of New Jersey. We have a population of just over 9 million people of just uh, a little over 7 million are Jews, and Israel is the technological hub of the world. We have rich multiculturalism, and we have a humanitarian core. So the it's very important that we need to strengthen the connection of Americans to Israel through business ties, through innovation, and science. We have shared with many countries, particularly the United States, democratic values. Uh, we, have, we have strong links because of this. Now, there are programs now uh, like Birthright and uh, Gap Year Israel, and these are needed particularly to acquaint young American Jews with the reality of Israel. And not just Jews, even non-Jews. We have bring them to Israel to solidify the bonds that can only be done really by personal experience, bringing people to Israel, Jews, non-Jews, and let them experience the reality of Israel is really important. And it's something that really has to be stressed we must collaborate with our friends and allies. Israel has values that the Western democracy share, individual rights, equal opportunity, freedom of speech, protest. The freedom of protest is probably used in Israel more than any other place in the world. For the last 26 weeks, People, hundreds of thousands of people have been protesting peacefully, peacefully about changes that the, the government wants to make and some of the rules dealing with the uh, Supreme Court. Imagine every, just about every week, hundreds of thousands of people take to the streets to peacefully protest.
Even as I'm recording this program, I, I think to myself, in the course of a little more than 70 years, Israel has become the technology hub of the world. It has a rich multiculturalism and a human, humanitarian core. It is really a very unusual country. When we go about our daily lives here, you don't think about it. When I sit down to do this program and I start putting my notes in front of me and thinking about what Israel has accomplished, is absolutely fantastic. There's no other place like this in the world. So, uh, it, we need to, to empower and support other democracies, particularly the United States. We have to help them to understand that anti-Semitism starts with the Jews, but it never really ends with the Jews. And that the evil anti-Semitism is a danger to America and to the values that make America great. It's really Israel's enemies, like the Islamo-Leftist Alliance, which is comprised of radical Muslims and the far-left extremists, they're America's enemies also. Despite these fundamental facts, an increasing number of groups in America, some of them anti-American themselves, are adopting and spreading this new anti-Semitism and their advancing lies about the Jewish state of Israel. So, the Jewish, uh, the, the truth of the matter is that we really have to go on the offensive. The Jewish diaspora is often just reactive. Israel's military and intelligence are known to be proactive and excel in taking the war to the turf of the enemy. So I think that American Jews should also adopt the same strategy and the and 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 take the take the to take action. They don't have to be power Jews in America do not have to apologize for being proud Jews or for being Zionists. And they have to teach the kids to be proud of themselves. If we concede and appease our detractors, we'll lose not only our courage, but also our standing. Without us going on the offense and being proactive, terms will continue to be constantly redefined and events are skewed with competing narratives flying in the face of historical facts. This group in the Congress, for example, has, has created a narrative about Israel that's simply not true. And there are, there are not, there's not enough opposition to this false narrative. When you're always explaining, you're losing. For example, the establishment of Israel was branded by the Islamo leftists as a Nakba. Nakba means a catastrophe. So it leaves us trying to fight against a nebulous, dubious definition instead of telling our own factual story. In fact, Nakba 
was originally coined as a reference to the so-called catastrophe of the six Arab armies losing to the Jews in Israel's War of Independence back in 1948. In the last several decades, this word Nakba has been co-opted even in the UN, and Israelis' enemies are using the word Nakba to reflect Palestinians' alleged ethnic cleansing by Israel and Israel's human rights of the Palestinians and turning the Arab, the Palestinians into victims. When the uh, head of the Palestinian author Authority spoke in the UN several weeks ago, he used that word, Nakba, the catastrophe. So it, it, that's one thing. You have to do away with that word. Do, we have to fight against that word. And additionally, the Palestinians' right of return needs to be called out for what it is. It's not a call for justice, but for the annihilation of Jews living in the land of Israel. There are millions of Arabs, five and six generations already, who either left Israel or were forced out, and they had to be forced out because of the military situation, and they're being kept in refugee camps to bring them back into Israel. The, Israel could not possibly bring them back, just simply by the numbers. So... Uh, what they want to do is annihilate the state of Israel. Believed by many to be a tool in negotiating toolkit for the conflict, this right of return is just another perpetual piece of semantic propaganda to undermine the state of Israel and prevent peace for future generations. So we have to continue to expose Israel's critics for what they are. We have to do it through research, through facts, and particularly for efforts in the media. In the last two decades, we've also witnessed a significant shift in the rhetoric and support for Israel across the Western world. It's no accident that anti-Semitism has increased, particularly in the United States. Too often, Jews are left responding to assertions made by assertions made by others. They're hesitant. Jews are hesitant about telling our story. Jews are reluctant to go on the offense. We have to prepare, prepare one another, and prepare our allies, and prepare the next generation for how to have conversations on our terms as proud Jews and supporters of Israel, whether Jewish or otherwise, we have to go on the offense. The, we, we have to be bold, we have to be unapologetic, and to maintain our gaze on the future. And one of the, I think one of the really important things is bringing people to Israel to get to know the state but not just simply, simply to tour Israel. I know there, there, there's uh, people who come to Israel, you know, one of the, they bring people to Israel and they bring them to uh, the Holocaust uh, Museum in uh, Jerusalem. And, and it's important, it's certainly important to, to, to know what's happened in recent history and to educate them. But the people have to be brought to Israel. Have to be, have to meet with the common people in Israel. We we often have guests 
Many times we have non-Jewish guests who have come who knew nothing at all about Israel. They came for a visit and they were offered an opportunity to spend a Shabbat with a uh, with a religious family to see what Shabbat is like. And we've had uh, people, we had uh, about a month ago, we had Mormons at our Friday night table. Uh, several months ago, we had a group from... Uh, a university in the city of Washington who really knew nothing about Israel, only what they read in the headlines. It's important for Israel to take the offensive in getting out knowledge about our country. I think it's a, a responsibility of our government to put budget into it, to, to uh, send spokesmen, and to create uh, educational activities, not just for the Jewish community, but for the general community in the Western countries to learn about Israel. There's no, I, many years ago when I uh, used to do speaking engagements, uh, I, I found quite often I would go to universities like University of Arizona, where there were almost no Jewish students at that time, they really knew nothing about Israel, and they listened uh, very carefully. I remember I spoke to a, a, a very large group. I spoke for about an hour and a half, and at the end of the uh, my talk, I gave room for questions, and they asked a lot about the basic questions about the state of Israel they knew nothing about, and they thanked me for enlightening them. It wasn't so much that I had a lot of new things to say, but to them, it was new. It's important that we get out, particularly, I think, in educational uh, institutions in the United States, people should know what Israel is. It's not just simply a spot on the map. It is a real place with real people, with a real history, and we have to see that that message gets out. I'll be back after the break. Where can you get the inside news on Israel? At Israel News Talk Radio, we're dedicated to sharing Israel's inside story with the world by providing our listeners with news on Israeli politics, current affairs, and Israeli Jewish culture. The Israel News Talk Radio homepage also provides you, the listener, with useful information at your fingertips. With scrolling news headlines, weather, currency exchange, Shabbat candle lighting times, and so much more. Our radio programming is always accessible and on demand. We operate absolutely free of charge for everyone, everywhere. If you love what we do, partner with us now by becoming an Israel News Talk Radio supporter. With your support, you'll be inscribed on our Israel News Talk Radio Wall of Fame. There's nothing like us in the world. Be part of something great. Israel News Talk Radio. Straight talk from Israel. You're back with Jay Shapiro. Something happened last week that uh, received a headline on the second page of uh, most of the Israeli newspapers, but it is of such unbelievable significance that it is almost mind-boggling. What happened was the Germany moves ahead with plans to buy Israel's Arrow 3 missile defense for 4 billion 
arrows, arrows. That was the headline. Now stop and think about this for a moment. When viewed within the context of recent history, this headline is absolutely astounding. First, the Jewish people survived the Holocaust. Second, the Jewish people established an independent state just a few years after the Holocaust. And third, this state the Jewish people's state of Israel, which was once so desperate for arms that it agreed to take them from West Germany in 1958, despite fierce internal opposition to the idea on moral grounds, Israel is now able to sell state-of-the-art weaponry to Germany. And what's even more interesting, Israel is selling state-of-the-art weaponry to Germany without any internal debate about whether it is proper for the Jewish state to provide weapons to Germany, a nation that only three generations ago was responsible for the murder of more than one-third of the Jewish people. Think about that. In the 1940s, Germany is responsible for killing a third of the Jewish people, and today the Jewish state, which did not exist at the time of the Second World War, is selling major missile systems to Germany. Now, the idea that Israel has long been at peace with the idea of buying weapons from Germany, uh, including, uh, by the way, is nuclear-capable submarines. They're now being built in Germany. Is is uh, selling cutting-edge systems to Germany with this kind of price tag? It's one thing to buy arms from Germany for self-defense. It's another thing to sell weapons to Germany. Now, it's true that Israel has sold weapons to Germany in the past, but nothing like this price tag. We're talking about uh, 4 billion euros. What happened was last week that the Bundestag in Germany approved an advance payment of 560 million euros for the deal. So you you talk about a refer, reversal of fortunes, about a reversal of history, and and the reversal of fortunes reflected in this sale that has not only to do with Israeli-Germany ties, it is much, much broader than that. This reversal of fortune, which appeared on, on the second page of the most papers here, has shown the distance that the state of Israel has traveled as a country. The, when Israel came into being, 1948, the main thing it had to export was Jaffa oranges. And then they had the Uzi submachine, submachine gun. But today, 
Israel provides missiles that shoot down other missiles in the stratosphere. Israel sells software that drives industries, and, and Israel is on the cusp of exporting natural gas to European countries who are looking to reduce their dependence on Russian oil. We're talking about natural gas that's available uh, in the Mediterranean area near, uh, near Cyprus. Now, I think I mentioned before that the defense ministry reported that Israel's defense exports soared to a record $12.5 billion in 2022, which is up an astounding 400% from the scope of the sales at the turn of the century, and it's up some 120% over the last 15 years. The sale of the Arrow 3 Arrow 3 missile system is the third of several really what you can call mega sales to European countries in two months. Uh, the, uh, they announced the sale of the David Sling missile defense system to Finland and something called the PULS artillery rocket launcher to the Netherlands. Israel is selling major defense systems to European countries. Interestingly enough, according to uh, the statistics, 29%, almost 30% of the 2022 weapon sales went to Europe, and almost 25% of the sales went to the Abraham Accords countries. That's the United Arab Emirates, Bahrain and Morocco. The uh, these sales are important to Israel for two main reasons. First of all, they strengthen bilateral ties. If Israel is providing a country with weapons to keep it safe, uh, and they've become key markets for Israeli arms. They'll relate to Israel in a fundamentally different way than if there were no arms sales in a relationship. Think about it for a minute. Arms sales is important. These countries are buying arms from Israel in their own defense. Countries like people relate to and treat those they need differently than those they do not need. And the fact that Israel is selling these arms means that they need Israel. Now, the other thing, and it's really important, the other reason these sales are critical is they make it possible for Israel to conduct research and development to produce the weapons it needs for its own survival. Bringing in this money gives us the, the chance to uh, do the studies, do the research, and the development for the things we need for our own survival. The, the, uh, the primary purpose of Israel's weapons industry is not to sell to foreign countries. primary purpose of Israel's weapons industry is to create weapons needed for the Israeli army. Some of these arms must be tailor-made for Israel's unique circumstances, and others, they have to be made here because Israel simply can't, can't get, get them anywhere else. 
Uh, the uh, last year, Israel needs to export 70% of the weapons and systems it manufactures to pay for the research, development, and production of the weapons it needs for its own survival. In other words, it's very interesting. In order, again, to put it simply, we need money to develop for our weapons for our own survival. In the course of doing this, we sell to other countries. That's where we get the money. So the net result is that Israel's ability to give countries around the world things they need, uh, and the things they need, by the way, not just weapons, they give irrigation expertise, medical innovations, uh, the uh, these things the, the rest of the world needs. And this utility to the world explains the explosion in Israel's diplomatic ties over the last 15 years. Look at the ties in, Israel now has with foreign countries. India, United Arab Emirates, Greece, Rwanda. Israel's diplomatic situation has improved, corresponding to an appreciation of the tangibles that Israel brings to the table. For instance, just think about it for a minute. Does anyone think that the United Arab Emirates, Bahrain, and Morocco would have signed agreements with Israel if the Jewish state could not provide what they need? We provide something they what they need. It's undoubtable that arms sales, business deals, technological cooperation, intelligence, these kinds of sharing have all had a significant impact on improving Israel's standing around the world. In the past, when Israel spoke to Europe, it spoke about common values and democracy. We used to say, be friendly to Israel, we share common values. We are part of you, you are part of us. Now, that has a limited appeal when the the Europeans, for example, had a very real commercial interest in the Arab countries. So we were we were appealing to the Euro, European countries by telling them, look, we have common values. But the European country is more interested than the money they could make by selling to the Arab countries. But it's interesting, and there's a real, real example of this. During the Yom Kippur War, Israel is attacked, but because of the oil embargo, the Americans could not get a single country to allow them to refuel planes on the way to Israel. Britain refused, and in the end, where did the planes land, bringing arms from the United States? They landed in the Azores Islands, which is under Portuguese sovereignty. All the NATO allies refused. I remember that, by the way, during the Yom Kippur War. I remember being at the airport and unloading munitions from American planes, that we knew had stopped at uh, the Azores. Because what's happening now, economic interests are more important than common values. That's the way it is. We still have common values with the Western countries. 
but they know that they have tangible advantages by having relations with Israel. By the way, in addition to natural gas, which Israel hopes eventually to export to Europe, Israel high-tech is increasingly critical to the European economies, and that the war in Ukraine now has hammered home to numerous European countries for a strong military defense. Because of the war in Ukraine now, between Ukraine and Russia, more countries in Europe are becoming very sensitive to the fact that they have to bolster their own defenses. And Israel is a, source, is a resource for the kind of equipment that the European countries need for their defense. So this has increased Israel's value, and therefore it's increased Israel's stature. What these European countries are getting from Israel's are technologies that work because Israel has battle-tested them. Israel is one of the few countries in the world, unfortunately, really unfortunately, that we're in a continual war. So our, our arms are battle-tested, and it makes them much more attractive to the European countries. So when they buy from Israel, they're getting equipment's been battle tested, and they're also getting getting it from an ally and a friend. In some cases, there's no good substitute for Israeli technology. No, the uh, th there's uh, the question is how much have the Europeans changed toward Israel? But in Britain, for example. The main reason for a change in attitude toward Israel was the shifting attitudes of the Gulf countries. There's significant trading and military partners for Britain and much of Europe, but they're also now Israel. It's worth noting the Gulf states' attitudes toward Israel changed because of realization of what they could gain from ties with Israel. For years, the Gulf states were saying, well, until you settle the Palestinian problem, we're not going to have anything to do with you. And he suddenly realized that the Palestinian problem apparently is... Uh, not solvable for the foreseeable future, and they say to themselves, what can we get, what can benefit us by being friended to Israel? So the, uh, the years Britain and other key European states were concerned that forging closer relations with Israel would jeopardize their uh, profitable contracts in the Arab world. But when the Gulf states themselves began talking with Israel, even before the signing of the Abraham Accords in 2020, these other countries realized there'd be no blowback from other Arab countries if they in Europe improved their ties with Israel. So what happens is that Israel's relations with Britain and other European states has improved. So we live in a complicated world. The uh, the is it's interesting. Uh, the EU, the European Union ambassador, 
was asked whether an increased reliance among other European countries on Israeli weapons and possible natural gas is softening criticism inside the European Union or changing Israel's image and status within the European Union. See, so this, the, the European Union ambassador emphasized the strong interconnection between the European Union and Israel. He said we are very much connected, much more than we can imagine. The economic partnerships are very active, and research from the European Union to Israel in close contact, not to speak of the diplomats. There is a positive change in the attitude because people understand that we are interconnected. Now, that interconnectedness is something that Israel wants to promote around the world, not only in Europe. A senior Israeli official uh, who is very closely involved in relations with the United States said a number of years ago that Israel's goal was to get so linked with the United States as to become almost indispensable. And that's a very interesting point. I know myself being involved in this when I worked at Israel Aircraft, we got uh, American uh, armaments and we improved them and gave those improvements back to the United States. So it wasn't simply a question of the United States providing arms to Israel. The arms they provided to Israel were improved by Israel, and the improvements went back to the United States. So getting business and high-tech military and intelligence communities so interconnected that even if one day a president sat in the White House who was not positively predisposed to Israel and was desirous of reevaluating the relationship between the United States and Israel, he would be told by business and military leaders that this would be unwise and inimical to American interests because the U.S. would have too much to lose if it broke off good relations with Israel. That's what's happened. It's a different world. This is how most people would have responded 80 years ago. They would have this is impossible. They could have dreamed 80 years ago what would be happening now. If, if 80 years ago you would say to somebody that a Jewish state would one day sell more than $4 billion worth of trailblazing military hardware to Germany, they would have said you are out of your mind. But it turns out the nation that was responsible for the death of one-third of the Jewish people is now buying millions, billions of dollars of Israeli armaments. It is a totally different world that no one could possibly have imagined 80 years ago. As a matter of fact, they probably couldn't have imagined it 10 years ago. This is the world in which we live today. I'll be back after the break. You're listening to Israel News Talk Radio. Be smart. Listen to Israel News Talk Radio in the background while you work and get the latest news and commentary from Israel. Israel News Talk Radio. Straight talk from Israel. 
You're back with Jay Shapiro. There were two reports in the news this week that are complete opposite of each other. <laughs> Allow me to explain what I mean. There was a report that the United Nations Commission of Inquiry on Israel plans to probe Israeli settler violence against Palestinians and its link to West Bank annexation. The speaker for the UN in Geneva said, we're very disturbed as violent settler activity has increased in the last months is becoming a means through which annexations is annexation is ensured beyond occupation. Now this speaker for the United Nations Geneva spoke after the three member pa uh, panel uh, chaired by a, a woman named uh, Navi Pillay. Actually, it might be a man. The first name is Navi, N-A-V-I. I'm not sure what that is. It reported, and its third report in the 53rd UN Human Rights Council session, which is meeting this month. They said it is upcoming report due to be presented to the UN in New York is expected to focus on excessive use of force by Israeli security forces and will likely also deal with settler violence. There seems to be no comparable global situation where you have a group of people running around doing what they are doing with full license from the state and security forces. This is what the UN uh, spokesman said about Israel. And that reporters also expect to include an investigation they're doing into the shooting death of Palestinian-American journalist Shirin Ach last May during a firefight in Jenin. Now, critics of the commission, which was created in 2001, more than 20 years ago, had taken issue with its open mandate, making the probe the only, only permanent one against any country in the UN, U.S., UN human rights system. Concern has been raised about allegations made that social media was largely controlled by a Jewish lobby. Now, at least 27 countries called out the United Nations to end this open-ended mandate, charging it to contribute to anti-Israel bias. Now, the uh, also, the, uh, the B'nai B'rith, for example, said that the report failed to acknowledge any Palestinian terror groups, nor does it address the issue of Palestinian denial of Israeli rights, history, and identity. The The only thing this UN group does is charge Israel with war crimes and seeks to stigmatize critics of Palestinian, of the, uh, of the Palestinians. Okay, that was a news item. So here you have the UN in Geneva, condemning Israel. Okay, now, in opposition to this, there was an item this week that's something called the, the UN also, UN high-level pledging, event, pledging events for Sudan and the region this week. There was a meeting 
in which our foreign minister, Elie Cohen, participated and in which he's committed to help this, this struggling African country, Sudan, with food security. And this is a long history of Israel humanitarian efforts over the years. Now, Israel has for decades been aiding developing countries around the world with, by something called Mashav, M-A-S-H-A-V, which is a Hebrew ac uh, acronym for Israel's Agency for International Development Cooperation. Now, this agency was established in 1958 to help develop countries that could benefit from the knowledge Israel acquired when Israel was still a fledgling state. Now, that was many years ago, but to this day, Israel continues to work with countries around the world to ensure their sustainable social, economic, environmental development. Now, this program under Mashav has brought over 270,000 people from 130 countries to Israel for training in various fields. And Israel has built what's called centers of excellence abroad in a range of agriculture areas. They, had, they created something, Shalom Clubs. <coughs> this is for alumni of the Israeli program to network and have a greater impact in their home countries. Israeli embassies work with Meshav to share knowledge and technology focused on water, focused on water, agriculture, medicine, and other subjects, as well aid packages of food, medical equipment, and more for those in need. For example, in the last week alone, only last week, Mashab sent thousands of liters of potable water and over 10 tons of food to Ukraine for the volunteers there to distribute. Uh, the, meanwhile, the Israeli embassy in Brazil donated food to a food bank grown as a part of a project to teach sustainable vegetable farming methods using Israeli technology and professionals from 20 countries ar arrived last week in Haifa here in Israel for training. I'm sure that most people, even here in Israel, are unaware of the fact that in recent years, Israel has sent aid to various countries at war, like Ukraine, and disaster zones like areas impacted by the devastating earthquakes in Turkey. Our foreign ministry works in coordination with the IDF, the Army, which, which has world-class search and rescue teams, and with the health ministry, which has set up field hospitals and sent medical teams abroad. A little bit was known when a building collapsed in Florida several years ago, and Israel sent a, t Israel sent a team that did the basic work there 
and uh, pulling people out. Now, now Israel has uh, Israelis has also launched their own private rescue missions through NGOs specializing in emergency response, and Israel has worked in over 50 countries. They have something called Save a Child's Heart. It's brought over 4,500 children from 63 countries to Israel for life-saving cardiac care, including Palestinians and citizens of neighboring countries with Israel does not have diplomatic relations. And these are only some of the most prominent efforts, and there are many more. Now, Israel's humanitarian policy is a tool, obviously, for advancing the, the state's interest. Mashav was founded by Golda Meir back in the 1950s, primarily as a way to counteract the Arab boycott and build alliances for Israel in the post-colonial area when many new countries were achieving independence around the world, particularly in Africa. So it was a clever move on the part of the Israeli government under the foreign minister, Golda Meir, and they've helped hundreds of thousands of people and are still doing so. So the... Um, the, the Israeli government now, uh, under the lead of the foreign minister, hopes to finalize a normalization process between Jerusalem and Sudan, which began in late 2020 as part of the Abraham Accords. The, uh, but then a war broke in the Sudan, so uh, things were put off. Through its aid, and sharing of expertise in countries like Morocco, the, uh, the, the, we will have regional cooperation. Israel wants to show other countries that establishing diplomatic ties to Israel will also provide other benefits to them. Now, it, the bottom line is, it's interesting, and I'm sure most of what I've said so far is unknown to the listeners. I'm, I myself was not aware of it, but uh, I did some reading this week. Israel humanitarian aid is part of the Jewish fulfillment of Jewish value, values. There is a Jewish concept called tikkun olam, which means to repair the world. It's been used so much, become something of a cliche, but there are other relevant things such as build a world of kindness. And and there is a comment in the Talmud, says whoever saves one life is considered to have saved the whole world, and that one life they saved did not have to be Jewish. So Israel is pushing aids to Sudan and countries beyond it, So what Israel is essentially doing is continuing its fulfillment of Jewish ideals to be a light unto the nations, as well as fulfilling a moral duty to save lives. It's also expressing a solidarity with people in need and showing it as a responsible member of the global community, 
We're building bridges of friendship and cooperation. Cooperation. Israel is putting the country's best foot forward, building a positive image for the nation that will stick with countries, peoples, countless people around the world. All of this is in complete opposition to what I said at the beginning of this part of the program, that the UN is, has a panel this pro-violence uh, by Israelis. So there you have the plus and the minus. They're busy uh, uh, saying things in the UN against Israel, while Israel is going around the world for 60 years helping people any place it can in hundreds of countries and brought people to Israel to train them in the kind of fields that they can go back to their own countries and help develop them. So after, after more than 50 years of doing this, we still have a UN panel that, that is, uh, is, uh, condemns Israel. So that gives you an idea of the, uh, uh, I, I, don't, I can't even think of a word, good word to describe it. On one hand, we're going out of our way to help others, and at the same time, the United Nations, an organization that was supposed to solidify and build unity around the world, is busy condemning Israel. Something is very wrong here. And since I just said a few words about what the Zionist state is doing for the rest of the world, I want to say, uh, just to finish the program this week, to remind the listeners of a few things about Zionism. What is Zionism? It's a political movement advocating the establishment of a Jewish state in Palestine, and as a political movement, it began in the 19th and earliest 20th centuries. But Zionism has a meaning and origin much deeper in Jewish history as the homeland of the Jewish people. Our Zionism begins with the covenant, God's promise to Abraham that he and his descendants would inherit a land, which at that time land was called Canaan and was occupied by all kinds of other people. It was conquered by Joshua, we read about in the Bible, but the, 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 not all of it was conquered, and it, 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 the uh, Jews struggled for many years until the reigns of King Saul and King David. The word Zion, by the way, first appears in the book of Samuel, Samuel 2, chapter 5, verse 7, and refers to a fortress in the city of David, and eventually Jerusalem. Along with the Jewish people, King David brought the threshing floor there and built on the Temple Mount an altar to the Lord. That was the site of the first and second holy temple. So, the uh, the the, the, the uh, Mount Zion is here in Jerusalem, in the northern side of the great uh, of the city. Zion is embedded in our consciousness. 
Zionism did not end with the destruction of the temple and the exile of the Jews. Zionism is the core of Judaism. Jews in the diaspora remember Zion. Many returned, and in our three daily prayers, the Shmona Esra, we faced toward Jerusalem. So, it's interesting. The uh, the right of the Jews to their homeland was recognized by the League of Nations after the First World War, and by the United Nations after the Second World War. But Jewish immigration was restricted and prevented by the British during the Mandate period. This contributed to the Holocaust, in which six million Jews were killed. The the, the British essentially controlled this country. But they did nothing to help the Jews or to stop Arab attackers during the period of their mandate. By the way, interestingly enough, uh, the term Zionism was coined by a gentleman named Nathan Birnbaum back in 1890 and was adopted as the name for the movement to support establishing a Jewish state in the land of Israel. So Jews have been coming back to Palestine all these years, 2,000 years. So the, the holiest place in the world for Jews. Now, it, by the way, in Kabbalistic teaching, it refers to the spiritual source of reality and the presence of God in the Zion. Zion is referred to 152 times throughout the Bible as Jerusalem, the holy city. And Zionism and Zionist principles and ethics are the foundation of the state of Israel. So Zionism is therefore more than a political and social construct. It is first and foremost an idea in the mind of God. So now you have people who accuse Zionism racism. So essentially what they're saying, if you think about it, is that God is a racist. Those who deny Jewish sovereignty in the land of Israel are denying God's sovereignty. Those who assert that a Jewish state and here is, is the, uh, the homeland of the people has no right to exist. And those who deny it of Jews to their own homeland are essentially denying God's will. And so, as I said in the beginning of this segment of my program, the Zionist state is doing wonders for people around the world. And yet there are still those in the UN who condemn us for all kinds of, of vicious acts that are simply not true. And that is very sad. I remember, I remember when the UN was first found, and I remember when I was a kid, and it was the hope of the world. Apparently, the only thing that the UN is able to center itself on is, con is to condemn the Jewish state, and that is really, really a bad thing. There's no two ways about it. The UN has failed in its mission. The very fact that it condemns the Jewish state means that it has failed in its mission. The, the, the UN created the Jewish state, and apparently members of the UN are now sorry that they did so. That is a very tragic thing. Tragedy is the difference between what is and what could be. 
Israel as a flourishing state that helped others in the world, the UN as unfortunately a tragedy. Sad to say, but that's what it is. It's what it could have been, could have been, and it isn't. Thanks for listening. I'll be back next time. Dave Shapiro, signing off.